Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. I'm glad to have all of you with us for Political Rewind today. Big, big day in politics, the morning after, the afternoon after, whatever, the New Hampshire primary. And uh, we've got a table full of political experts that's like my dream team. Uh, What did you call them, Tom Faust? The A-team. Tom Faust says it's the A-team. <laughs> the A-plus team. And I'm going to introduce more formally. It's Andra, Audrey, Allen, and Amy, which means uh, Dr. Andra Gillespie <laughs> of Emory University, Dr. Amy Steigerwald of Georgia State University, uh, Dr. Audrey Haynes of the University of Georgia, and Dr. Alan Abramowitz from uh, Emory University, too, and uh, all Uh, political scientists who have just lend so much credibility to political. So first and foremost, thank you all for being here today. In a minute, Greg Bluestein uh, is going to join us on the phone. He's been up in New Hampshire. Very quickly, before we get to all of that, let me give you the latest. Um, There's about 91 plus percent of the vote in in New Hampshire. Bernie Sanders is maintaining a very narrow lead of about three to 4,000 votes. Pete Buttigieg, second. Uh, Amy Klobuchar, third, with about 20% of the vote. And then a, a terrible fall off that we'll talk about. Elizabeth Warren and uh, Joe Biden with under 10% of the vote and not getting any delegates out of uh, New Hampshire. So, First of all, let's get Greg Bluestein on the phone, and we'll talk to him for a couple minutes, and you all are more than welcome to weigh in with this. Greg, you've uh, made your way down from Manchester on, highway, on US 93, one of the great highways leading up to uh, the New Hampshire primaries, and you're in Boston getting set to come back to Atlanta, right? You got it. I feel like I need a doctorate to be on this panel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where were you last night? I was at uh, Nashua, New Hampshire, with Pete Buttigieg's um, uh, election party, and I got to tell you, it was uh, it was really interesting because about every it seemed like every five minutes there's a giant roar from the crowd as the latest uh, returns came in, and it showed him narrowing the gap. He didn't quite overcome that gap, but it showed him being very close within a couple percentage points of Bernie Sanders. Am I correct? It looked to me as if he was uh, reading his speech off a teleprompter. And, and the only reason I point that out is he's been so good spon- as a spontaneous talker, but it did look like he may have had prompter up there. So, you know what? I'm glad you asked that because I had a unique vantage. I was standing directly above him, and I, took, I was taking pictures of it. He was not reading from a teleprompter. Oh, he was reading okay. from a, um, a couple pieces of paper he brought in, and I was actually amazed that he barely looked at those those papers. And again, I don't usually notice this stuff, but from my vantage, I was on the, kind of the second floor of this giant gym at, the, at a community college in Nashua, so I could clearly see you know, the, 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 the white papers in front of him um, as he was speaking. And I was kind of impressed because I would have had to look down my papers a lot more than he did. All right. So as long as you mentioned <laughs> Pete Buttigieg, uh, why don't, and you were there when he gave his speech, why don't we just kind of switch up the order that we were going to take some of these sound bites in and take his first, and then I want to bring everybody on the panel and uh, you in on this. Here's just a little excerpt of Pete, what Pete Buttigieg told the crowd that you were part of last night, Greg. I want to congratulate my competitors and their supporters on their campaigns here in New Hampshire. I admired Senator Sanders when I was a high school student. I respect him greatly to this day, and I congratulate him on his strong showing tonight. Americans want the freedom to make choices for themselves on health care or on any other issue, not to have Washington decide for them. And a politics of my way or the highway is a road to reelecting Donald Trump. So uh, most of us got a little chuckle, I think, uh, Alan, out of... I've admired Bernie Sanders since right. I was in high school. <laughs> yeah. I mean, clearly this was a kind of a put down yeah. of Sanders. And, you know, when you're in high school, you know, you admire Bernie Sanders, but then you grow up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but it's interesting, uh, Amy, that we now have the oldest candidate for president, 
uh, in a very, in at least a competition coming out of New Hampshire. We'll see what happens next with uh, the youngest candidate for president. It's kind of a remarkable dynamic. It really is. And it's also really fascinating because the youngest candidate is polling best with the oldest yeah. voters and right. the oldest candidate <laughs> is polling best with the youngest voters. Right. That's great. Uh, Audra, uh, Audrey, either of you want to weigh in? Well, I would just say, um, actually, when I was looking at the exit polls, uh, I think Amy Klobuchar is actually polling best with uh, from the exit polls with 65 plus. So right. older voters for Buttigieg, too, because they're uh, Buttigieg, because they're uh, moderate. But um, one thing that we should note about Sanders is uh, is the age thing. Uh, one of the things that will come up, I think, is that he begins uh, getting uh, more uh, attacks towards him, as we will see, is that uh, he hasn't released his medical records. Right. So that's that's something they're going to hone in on right. due to age. Yeah, I, I, Andrew, that's right. I mean, obviously, you know, he says I've released as much information as other candidates. And, and, and of course, the pushback is, yeah, but none of the other candidates have had heart attacks in the past six months. And Well, there's that. And then there's the issue that he promised more medical records. Yes. And so mm-hmm. those haven't been forthcoming. And so I think it becomes a question of, well, what are you trying to hide? We all know you had a heart attack. So how bad is it? And that's a serious question when you're pushing 80 years old. Yeah. Um, you know, can you actually serve out two terms? I mean, it was a question that I thought was a legitimate question when John McCain was running for president. We now know that he could have served an eight-year term and, and, and lived a little bit past that. But you just don't know when you get to that age, especially when somebody is actually hitting that natural sort of life expectancy yeah. age. I mean, that's a legitimate question. Yeah. So, uh, Greg, uh, we know the campaigns uh, all take a big turn uh, now, and since you were at Buttigieg's uh, headquarters last night, we might as well have this part of the conversation. Uh, we, we, all, we know that Buttigieg is surging, uh, but he faces uh, South Carolina and Nevada next. He's got plenty of money uh, for both states, but of course, he faces the question of whether he has any ability to broaden his base, right? Did they talk about that last night? No, they didn't really get into that uh, beyond two general arguments. He said that first, um, you know, the, pitting the status quo against the revolutionaries leaves a lot of people out in the middle who, who aren't for either. And second, he did bring up actually Georgia. I mean, he, he brought up voter suppression uh, in the context of black voters in Georgia and Native Americans and young college students up in New Hampshire. Um, so it, it seemed like he will be hitting that issue um, harder, too, as he as he comes down to the South, but you're right, it's a giant question from some polls show him at minimal, you know, statistically marginal numbers of, of, of amount of support among African-American voters. And it's a question that Bernie Sanders also faces, given his, his, his uh, resounding defeat in the Georgia primary four years ago. So, panel, what do we think about the Buttigieg, the way he's now framing the contest between him and Sanders particularly? Uh, we're not looking for a revolution. Uh, we're looking for essentially stability. We're right. looking for – what do we all make of that? Somebody weigh in on that. I, I mean, I think that the uh, candidates running in that moderate lane, which are now Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and, and then it's going to be Michael Bloomberg, yeah. are, are all going to be jockeying to see you know, who can uh, claim the mantle as, a, as the leading sort of candidate in that lane, particularly with the apparent collapse of Joe Biden. So – you know, who's going to inherit Joe Biden's voters, both the more moderate uh, Democrats and African-American Democrats. But it, so, yes, that seems correct. But this notion of do you voters don't want a revolution. I, I does it resonate that people do people think of that when they think of Sanders as a guy who wants a, somehow a revolution. I, I'm not sure how that resonates. Well, I mean, there is the organization that supports him that's called Our Revolution. Well, I know. So. But, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, yes. I get it. talks about a political revolution yeah. You know, yeah. constantly. Yeah. 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 But I mean, I think it's a question of, I mean, by revolution he's implying, I mean, look, he's, he's tying into sort of what we think about socialism. Like, part of the reason why that's an, an effective trope for Republicans is when people hear socialists, they think communists and they think Soviet. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's just trying to remind people of all that Cold War imagery that, you know, anybody over 35 would remember um, and and then trying to scare people into that. And so basically what he's trying to say is don't let the good, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good in this situation. Do you really think that that is actually going to get through a general election, sort of that type of, 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 of stance? And so, you know, he's making a case that all of the moderates are trying to make in this situation. It's a 
it's, it's, it's something that President Obama has said. There are a lot of people who I like the way you said that better than I've heard it coming out of the Buttigieg <laughs> people to tell you the truth. Well, maybe it's because I'm older. <laughs> uh, you know, it's interesting, Amy, uh, because uh, Andre talks about, of course, the Republicans are going to call them socialists. That makes people think communist. Well, one of the reasons they're thinking communist is because President Trump is now saying, uh, I don't know that he's a socialist. I think he may be an out-and-out communist, communist mm. speaking of Sanders. Very true. And so and I think that, again, people are just going into that. There's this jockeying over that sort of middle lane. Um, I'm unwilling to say that Biden has collapsed quite yet because I don't think he really was looking at these two first states. He's he's looking ahead and is polling much better um, in other places where there's a lot more votes. But I think Buttigieg, it's it's two things. It's it's both the stability. It's also really playing into the again that Washington is problematic. Washington has failed. We need somebody as an outsider. Yeah. Um, he's used a lot of language of the heartland yeah. and sort of middle America, which some people find reassuring. Other people find actually quite off-putting and sort of suggesting that those who live in big cities are somehow problematic. All right. Um, let me do this. Uh, Greg, I know you're going to be uh, getting on an airplane fairly soon. So we're going to release you in a second. But w- would you give us briefly Give us your overview. You were with Buttigieg, but obviously you were watching the whole primary unfold up there. So before we uh, let you go, what's your general takeaway from from the results last night and this morning? Well, a couple of things. I mean, it, it provided clarity in a way that we hadn't seen before because at least there was a winner, but it still didn't do much to clear <laughs> up this very unsettled field. Um, the moderate lane still got the, the, the majority of votes. I mean, if you, if you combine um, Klobuchar and Buttigieg and Biden um, with with the progressive candidates in the field, you know the moderate candidates still got the majority. But look, this gives this gives Klobuchar um, some some new momentum to come into these to these Super Tuesday states in, in Nevada and in South Carolina later this month. At the same time, this was the disaster for not just we talked about Joe Biden, but also Elizabeth Warren. This was her neighboring state. Boston's media market overlaps with half of New Hampshire. She was a well-known quantity here, and she didn't even break double digits here and didn't get a single delegate. So a very bad night for her, too. And it's not clear what her path forward is, although she does say she has a tremendous amount of staffers in Nevada, and she'll be ready to compete there in two weeks. Uh, Greg, I really appreciate you taking a few minutes. I know you've had a long week up there, and uh, we want you back in, in Atlanta and want to get you back in our studio to continue this conversation. So thanks, Greg Bluestein, for joining us. See you soon. Yep. All right, let's go down the candidates and listen to a little of what they had to say last night and then talk more specifically uh, about it. Bernie Sanders was the winner, so uh, we're going to listen to a little bit of what he told his crowd. This victory here is the beginning of the end for Donald Trump. And what I can tell you with absolute certainty, and I know I speak for every one of the Democratic candidates, we are going to unite together and defeat the most dangerous president in the modern history of this country. You know, Audrey, when I heard Sanders say that last night, I couldn't help but think about 2016 when many people would say he was the guy who was not willing to come together with uh, Hillary Clinton, who at a certain point was clearly going to win the nomination. And uh, and now he's calling for unity given that he's the front runner. Well, and you're, you're hearing that Warren speech also resonated with people because she, who had been very much a pugilistic kind of candidate before, was, you know, echoing that uh, sentiment that we are going to focus more on coming together because none of them want to, if potentially they come out and they're the nominee, none of them want to lose those other people. That's strategic, too, sure. as well as heartfelt. I would also want to follow up on one thing when we were talking about socialism. One thing about the candidates in the moderate lane, we should say that they are they are progressives. They're all progressives in a way. They're just that's pragmatic right. progressives. And um, that's important to note. I thought, Ellen, this morning I heard Pete Buttigieg talk about just that, calling himself a progressive. I hadn't heard him use that language before, but that doesn't mean he hasn't. But he's certainly using it now. Right. So I think that um, clearly they're um, trying to pitch their message right now to the primary voters in the upcoming states and trying to expand their appeal. 
Um, one thing I noticed in the exit poll results from New Hampshire that I thought was interesting, and we saw it also in Iowa, is that majority of Democratic voters said that they're more concerned with choosing a candidate who can beat Trump yeah. than they are with choosing a candidate who they agree with yeah. on the issues. And uh, among that larger group, and it was over 60 percent in uh, New Hampshire, um, Sanders did not do as well. Um, he did best among the minority mm -hmm. who said they're choosing a candidate based on the issue. So I think you're going to see the other candidates pivoting to that, you know, to that argument. Uh, but that's, of course, that's what Joe Biden was trying to argue. His whole appeal was based on that. And with him kind of fading, maybe not completely, we'll I, see. But, I, I, you know, I think that, that other candidates are now trying to take that over. I think, Andre, I think I'm right that in the exit polling, 10 percent of voters said that Biden was the guy who could beat Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Or or he got 10 percent of the those. Yeah, that's who, right. It may have been the other but way you around. Primaries, Nevertheless, you know, if, if you're losing primaries, it's hard wow. to make that electability argument. Yeah. Right. And I think that. You know, there are a lot of people who could make the claim. I mean, we could look at the national polls. And so, you know, for most of the year, uh, Joe Biden sort of had the best margins against Donald Trump. But even, you know, there were other folks who were sometimes getting outside of the margins and, and were able to beat Donald Trump. And I think with the pragmatism, there are other people who can make a more credible claim. And then we can't discount the the fact that Joe Biden may have been hurt by the uh, attacks related to Burisma and the impeachment investigation. And even if he were to win the nomination, we know that we heard Hillary's emails ad nauseum in 2016, yeah. mm -hmm. right? Just uh, that this, you know, Joe Biden winning the nomination wouldn't quell that argument. And so Biden would keep on bringing up Hunter. He would keep on bringing up Burisma. He would keep on telling this crazy story of a billion and a half dollars from the Chinese that I haven't seen any evidence for. And so, like, it would just be nonstop, and that would end up weakening him. And, and Biden can only say malarkey so many mm -hmm. times. Okay. Well, you know, I don't actually think that that's what hurt him so much. I mean, I agree that that would be a problem Hard. for him. But from what I saw in Iowa, what hurt Biden the most there was Biden. Yes. It was his campaign. Uh, disorganization, a lack of a clear message beyond I can beat Trump, mm -hmm. um, and just the perception that he's, you know, slowing down, that, 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 you know, sure, he's always, you know, committed gaffes, but he just seems to have trouble finishing a sentence now. Yeah. I, I, Amy, he seems like a guy, and I think Alan's and, and the rest of us probably agree with this, he seems like a guy who f is running out of obligation rather than real enthusiasm for the job. And, and, and on top of his own, the way in which he's presenting himself personally, it, the campaign has been entirely disorganized, unsure of what its message, aside from I'm the guy who can beat Trump, really is. I mean, we may dissect this. You all, as political scientists, may dissect this campaign down the road and find how uh, uh, how ill-served he was by the way the campaign uh, operated. So I think that there's a lot of questions about sort of how the campaign is operating, the choices that they've made. A lot of people noted, for example, that his launch party for his South Carolina version of his campaign was last night. So he just sort of ignored New Hampshire altogether and also doesn't seem to be really acknowledging Nevada, which is an interesting choice. Um, but the other side of it is like just to, you know, play, I guess I'm not sure if it's devil's advocate, but, you know, I'm kind of I've been flipping through like the various 538, like the the polls that are going on. Um, he's ahead in a lot of the Super Tuesday states. Yeah. Uh, it's him and Sanders that are well above everybody still in the national so polling average. I would argue that's because but, Biden hasn't showed up in any of those states and, and yeah. spoken yet. Well, and, and, and it might be, but we've got to see. Yeah. I mean, again, those, it's those polls don't reflect yeah. the results of the early. Yes, contest yet. there's a lag. There haven't been yeah. a, a, a recent polls in most of those. states. Yes, yeah, that is Absolutely. true. But I think the other thing, though, that we've got to So we've got two things, right? The other person who hasn't shown up and that wasn't at all last night who we have to pay attention to is Bloomberg. Yeah. He It'll has be... really risen in Georgia, but also Buttigieg is having issues in a lot of these other states, especially as right. the demographics become much more diverse. Let's, I do want to, we're going to get to Bloomberg, but but let's, as long as we're with Biden, mm -hmm. I want to pick up on something that uh, Amy said, Andra. Uh, Biden unexpectedly left New Hampshire midday yesterday. Yep. He did have this launch event in South Carolina, Columbia, mm -hmm. I, I assume. Um, 
it was hastily arranged. Apparently, Biden campaign folks were calling people yesterday morning saying, please, we're going to do a launch party here, show up at wherever it was held. Let's just listen to a moment of what he said, and then I want to ask you, Andre, first to comment on all this. We just heard from the first two of 50 states, two of them, not all the nation, not half the nation, not a quarter of the nation, not 10 percent, two, two. Now, where I come from, that's the opening bell, not the closing bell. And uh, the fight to end Donald Trump's presidency is just beginning, just beginning. Is it, Andrew, for um, Joe Biden? It's not clear. So there are a couple of things that I think are problematic, not just the disorganization of it. Um, you know, he makes a, a, pl a plea for Latino voters in South Carolina. And it's like, well, that's the next caucus. So perhaps you should be in Nevada. Mm -hmm. He is hoping for a completely split decision, that there's a different winner in each place. He gets South Carolina and then he can make a case to go into Super Tuesday. It would be a stronger argument if he had, you know, $100 million in the bank. He doesn't. By continuing to lose all the time, and not just continuing to lose, but continuing to lose badly, yeah. mm -hmm. right? So he's in third place in the moderate lane right now. Um, like, it's going to be harder for him to continue to raise money, which is going to be harder for him to do the things that he wants to do on Super Tuesday. The other thing that's actually like really interesting, nobody talks about it, is, um, you know, there have been now been three polls in South Carolina that have um, Tom Steyer, yeah. like, mm -hmm. in right. double digits. Mm -hmm. So the first one, I was like, oh, mm -hmm. that's an outlier. But then when the second two came mm -hmm. in, Steyer's getting about a quarter of the African-American yeah. vote, yeah. according mm -hmm. to these polls. And it's in part because he's done this major ad buy in the state and bombarded right. them. Right. That's going to start to undercut and Biden's argument. Them. And hired them. He is out there spending money, mm -hmm. yeah. bringing in people to work for him. And a lot of yeah. them are black. He's targeting yes. South Carolina. He sees that as a yeah. as his last opportunity, I think. And, and Bloomberg is, is also, I think, uh, not South Carolina, but he is going to be focusing on those super on African-American voters oh. as oh, well. Yeah. Although yeah. he's got a problem now because they've just yeah, brought back this, this, this new tape. tape. And he's been asking a lot of questions yeah. about, about that. Um, so I actually, it's interesting that you talk about Steyer's uh, uh, polling numbers among African Americans in South Carolina. I saw him among the other presidential candidates at Al Sharpton's National Action Network breakfast the day after the Democratic debate here. And you're right. He, Andre, has honed his message very specifically uh, to appeal to African Americans. Now Biden's doing it. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how he does. Yeah, I mean, Steyer's not going to get the nomination. No, and so, no, like, no. The road is going to end for him somewhere around Super Tuesday. But can he yeah. hurt Biden? But, I mean, right now, he's hurting Biden in, 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 in South Carolina. If this holds up on Election Day, that's not going to, like, bode well for, right. for Biden. So, well, let me, let me go ahead, Audrey, and then I want to ask yes. you a question about well, all that. Well, I wanted to say something that was important that follows what Andre was saying. This is indicative of the intensity of the Biden support. Right. So he had all of that, you know, uh, lift in the, mm -hmm. the national polls. He had a lot of name recognition. You know, he had some performance issues. He had the stuff that was coming out during the, um, you know, impeachment trials. But people do not intensely support him, unlike Bernie, who has that core of intense support. And a lot of the other candidates are, are building some of that intensity. I'm thinking that a lot of Buttigieg supporters really like him, the ones that are coming over. And, and I think it's easy to see some of Biden's uh, support fall off because people don't feel as intensely. Yeah, Alan, do you think that when we see the next round of polling out of South Carolina, we already know that in the Quinnipiac um, national polling, Biden's support among African-Americans dropped more than 20 points since yep. Iowa. Do you imagine that in South Carolina, we may, given his poor performance, that that may start bleeding African-American voters from his side? Or are they loyal? Uh, I, th I think we're going to see them a, a, a fall off. He may still hold on to yeah. a share of the African-American vote, but I think my hunch is that a lot of African-American voters are going to be looking for someone else that they can support. Yeah, see, uh, I, yeah but I think the interesting question... They want to win more than anything else. Right. I mean, they right. want exactly. to be Trump, right. and yeah. they're looking to see, and, and, and if Biden is no longer viable, 
they've got to find somebody else there. It's true. And I think what's going to be the interesting question, though, is where is it that they go? Mm-hmm. Because, again, some of the people that we're talking about that are doing really well so far are the ones who are not doing well in minority communities. Right. I mean, Poop Buttigieg is yeah. not polling well. Amy Klobuchar is not actually polling well. She's not uh, Sanders She's also. not even known in those exactly. communities. I think she has, yeah. she has a little more upside potential, perhaps, if exactly. she can get the, raise the money and, and get in there and—, and, and uh, uh, become a, a better known. Well, that's a really good point, Andra, because we already know Buttigieg has some strikes against him in terms of his record as mayor of South Bend with African-American communities, whereas, as Ellen points out, Amy Klobuchar right now is to many people just kind of a blank slate. She's a blank slate. She does have the issue of being a former prosecutor, so right. there have been some issues that have come up there. I think it's a question of whether or not she could overcome it, and, and I think it's a question of do you look like you could win the nomination? Um, you know, there are the times— you know, we could look at African-American candidates where we have seen black voters, Jesse Jackson in particular, where we've seen mm-hmm. African-American voters flock to a candidate because they want to use that to gain leverage within the party. There isn't anybody with whom people would necessarily want to gain leverage unless you're super progressive and you're a Bernie Sanders yeah. supporter. So mm-hmm. then it's a question of, OK, you place your bets on who you think is going to win. And that seems pretty uncertain right now. So what I would predict would happen post-Biden would be that you might see a generational divide. So I could see younger voters mm-hmm. going to Sanders, maybe some going to Buttigieg, and then there just has to be a consensus about yep. who the other mm-hmm. moderate is, whether it's Klobuchar, whether it's Bloomberg. And maybe older black voters will forgive some of the stuff about stop and frisk in ways that the younger ones might not. We, we know that. I mean, Sanders already uh, does well. He's polling pretty well among younger African-American mm-hmm. voters. Among mm-hmm. those under 30 or 35, mm-hmm. I think he's leading. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with Latino voters. He does very well among younger Latino voters, too. And we know that Sanders and Buttigieg are both incredibly well organized right now in yes. Nevada, oh, which is, of oh. course, the next place we're looking uh, yeah. uh, next Saturday. Yeah. So thinking about Nevada a little bit, Nevada is a caucus. You yeah. know, we like um, Iowa. But one of the things that the but caucus is... Yes. No, different app. They, they, they actually had the app. They dropped the yes. app. And now they have a new app. Yes. They have a new so, app. Uh-oh. They have a new app. But importantly, they do have early voting. So they have mm-hmm. like three days of early voting for people who cannot caucus. But here's one thing that um, is going out. The culinary union and unions are very important mm-hmm. in um, in in caucuses, but especially in Nevada, uh, yep. you know, yep. um, there is a flyer that the culinary uh, union is passing out. And guess what that uh, flyer says? It is an attack on Bernie Sanders yep. and health care. And you know what? Mm-hmm. There's yeah. not only a flyer, but if you watch Pete Buttigieg on the morning shows today, there was Pete Buttigieg talking about Nevada as a union state and that unions like, oh, say, the culinary union, <laughs> part of the yep. AFL, might not like Bernie's uh, Medicare for all plan. Uh, definitely, because there's, I mean, so the, the issue what you have is bumping up against concerns of is it going to look like what the unions have fought really hard to negotiate for mm-hmm. on their health insurance. And some of this is this difference between, right, what what are we even talking about, right, that we've sort of in the United States conflate health insurance and health access as two different as the same thing when they're they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the other things that are going into this is that we've also got a sort of, you know, question, and I recognize that I have a tendency to bring this up, but I think it's a very real one, is to what degree as voters, right, if in fact, right, we are seeing voters that were voting for Biden now trying to look for someone else, are they going to be sort of, as Audrey mentioned it earlier, you know, sort of in favor of the PTO mom, or are they going to be concerned that a woman simply can't be commander in chief, um, which it, is still a very real thing that we see um, in lots of polls and, you know, in other types of experiments? OK, I got to get to a break. I want to keep talking for the next few minutes after the break, because uh, there's still a lot more that you all have to say. I know so much more about, <laughs> <laughs> about New Hampshire. But let's do this. Let's uh, take our first break on Political Rewind and We'll be back in just a minute.
We really do have the A-team in the Political Rewind studio uh, today. Dr. Amy Steigerwald, Georgia State University. Dr. Alan Abramowitz, Emory University. Also from Emory, Dr. Andre Gillespie. And making the long drive in from Athens, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Yes, Audrey, mm-hmm. on your birthday, Dr. <laughs> Audrey Haynes. As we were sitting down to start this show, an alert popped up on my phone saying it's Audrey Haynes' birthday. Happy birthday, Audrey. 50, <clears throat> 55, guys. 55. <laughs> yes. Well, we're very happy that you would take uh, some right. time to be with us. Where else would uh, I be? Today. <laughs> um, all right, let's do this. I'd like, to keep, uh, I'd like to hear just a little bit more from the um, candidates from last night and, and give you the chance to respond to what they had to say. So let's take a minute and let's listen to Amy Klobuchar, who came away from last night feeling very uh, uh, buoyant and enthused about next steps. We know that we cannot win big by trying to outdivide the divider in chief. We know that we win by bringing people with us instead of shutting them out. Donald Trump's worst nightmare is that the people in the middle, the people who have had enough of the name calling and the mud slinging, have someone to vote for in November. All right. What do we make of what she had to say? It's the pitch of unifying. It's the pitch of there's been a lot of nonsense and noise, and we'd all like to step away from it. Um, I mean, it is sort of. It's the mom voice of, like, would you people just stop, get your stuff together, stop being ridiculous, and let's do the things that we no. know we need to do and get them done. Ellen? Yeah, I agree. But I think Buttigieg is trying to make the same yeah. appeal. Yeah, clearly. Um, but- there's a lot of similarity in their in their messaging right now. Um, I like One thing that um, Klobuchar always does in her speeches that I've heard is she brings up the story about Franklin Roosevelt and, uh, yes. uh, and the— uh, the, the, you know, you've seen these photographs of this uh, African-American uh, musician, I think he was, and it was Roosevelt's funeral cortege, and the reporter asks him, did you know Roosevelt? Yeah. And he said, no, but he knew me. Yeah. And mm. I think that the message there is about you know, empathy yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and the contrast with Trump. Mm-hmm. And I think that the claim, I completely agree with you, that uh, Klobuchar and Buttigieg are actually trying to have the same message. I think it's a question of who can say that stuff more credibly. Right. Um, and I think just given her experience, mm-hmm. um, right. the fact mm-hmm. that she has won statewide office, the fact that she has won in, in, in Trump districts, like in general elections, not just in, in primary and caucus. Right. Uh, First woman senator in elections. State. Yeah, yeah, that she's trying to make the case that if this is what you want, I'm actually the more experienced hand, and so you can actually trust me to be mm-hmm. able to carry through on this. I've done more than just lead a town of 105,000 people. So, okay, if I, yeah. so, but here's the question, Audrey. Um, I don't know. It doesn't feel as though Klobuchar's campaign is ready for the success of New Hampshire. They don't have as much money. She did raise $5 million since uh, doing uh, uh, pretty well in, in – well, since the debate Friday night right. where she really was a standout. And But still, they are really lagging in, in uh, cash. And the question is, how does she build up resources to move forward? She's not as well organized as others are, uh, certainly not as well as Buttigieg in South Carolina or Nevada. So her road seems to be a little bit challenging, doesn't it? It could be. But welcome to um, the new age. The new age is a performance like she had in New Hampshire can generate a tremendous amount of money in a very short period of time. People have dropped out and their staff is looking for places to go. They have... Uh, organizations today, I mean, there are so many people out there who are very professional, and they they can set up. It is a challenge, but it takes money, and I think she's going to generate some money from it. Well, because I'm going to say, I'm not sure it's welcome to the new age, because there was another Democratic candidate who did that. Yes. Jimmy Carter. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) That was a different time, but he built up on, on that success in Iowa and New Hampshire and he was unknown Hamilton across Jordan. the country. Yes, and then, the Red Book. And then he you know, was able to start raising money. Now the question is, can someone like Klobuchar follow that path? Now the fundraising is different. It's, on, it's a lot online. You know, so in some ways it's easier. Um, will she be able to raise the kind of money 
in the next couple of weeks that she's going to need to compete on Super Tuesday when 14 states that's, are voting. That, and that's the really interesting question. We've now, you know, I, I've always, I used to I used to love covering uh, Iowa and New Hampshire because it was also focused, Amy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after Iowa and New Hampshire, it goes wide. Suddenly, you are looking at a map of the entire country beyond Nevada, beyond uh, uh, South Carolina. You're looking at Super Tuesday with 14 yeah, California, states, Texas, mm-hmm. uh, to, the yeah. two most populous states in the country. So yep. suddenly, the campaign mm-hmm. changes entirely, and you better have a lot of money and an organization to be able to compete across the country, right? No, it's very true. Cause, I mean, so there's all these sort of competing tensions. That on the one hand, we start with these two states. We put a ton of emphasis on them. And between the two of them combined, they have less delegates than South Carolina has, yeah. right? And nowhere near, right? Whereas New Hampshire 17... has 24. <laughs> Georgia has 105, I Exactly. Georgia has <laughs> almost triple, right, them yeah. combined, right? So it sort of shows you where the numbers are with Super Tuesday. But as actually Andre mentioned the other day, right, one of the things about those small states is that they're not as expensive to compete in comparatively right. to right the media markets in Georgia. You know the media markets in California are nuts, and so you've got to be able to staff it up. And so there's this real sort of tension between right what the momentum is, as well as your ability to get those resources, right. and who it is a that's giving money who people are going after for that money, because we've had a number of candidates this time who are not wanting to work with super PACs. They're not wanting to take large corporate donations, which therefore makes getting those, right, especially scaling up again, uh, much more difficult than if you were willing to just go out and do one massive big fundraiser, which goes into it. And Klobuchar, I mean, to be perfectly blunt, women have a lot more trouble raising money, period. As as you know, as as someone who has studied women in in elective politics uh, for a long time. And and minorities, too, right? I mean, so today, I think the other thing that's notable is we saw Yang dropped out. Patrick Duvall has suspended his campaign. I mean, there is no one left of color. So let me, let me, I want to play one more song. Oh, I thought she had dropped out, too. No, sorry, whoops. I'm sorry, Tulsi. Uh, that's right. Gabbard. She's still in there. Yes, I, yeah, wanna, I forgot she was still there. Tulsa, I want to play one more soundbite. And this is a little longer, Andra, because as I said earlier in the show, I, or maybe I said it off the air, I thought Elizabeth Warren last night gave an extraordinarily gracious and smart speech about what's going to happen next. So this is, gonna, this is a little bit longer than the other soundbites, but it's worth hearing. We might be headed for another one of those long primary fights that last for months. The question for us Democrats is whether it will be a long, bitter rehash of the same old divides in our party or whether we can find another way. Senator Sanders and Mayor Buttigieg are both great people and either one of them would be a far better president than Donald Trump. I respect them both. But the fight between factions in our party has taken a sharp turn in recent weeks with ads mocking other candidates and with supporters of some candidates shouting curses at other Democratic candidates. These harsh tactics might work if you are willing to burn down the rest of the party in order to be the last man standing. Andra? Probably a preview of the speech that she'll give at the Democratic convention, not for herself. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, I, I think it's really important, especially given the fact that she is the other progressive candidate. Yeah. Um, and I actually do see distinction. So even though I recognize the fact that the party has mm-hmm. moved left ideologically mm-hmm. speaking, I don't look at somebody like a Pete Buttigieg as actually being progressive. Right. It's just a label he applies yeah. to himself. It's a label he applies to himself um, <laughs> that he and some of the candidates of color who have since dropped out mm-hmm. of the race could actually uh, don because of the fact that they carried certain identities. But mm-hmm. actually, if you look at their policies, they're actually pretty centrist people. And I just say own it, um, you know. So, uh, you know, I don't see that, that that's a problem um, per se. But I think that because she does represent the wing of the party that is more rabid and that, you know, walked out in part in the Democratic Convention in 2016, she's telling her own people, yes, you might be disappointed, but you need to look at the larger picture. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think she's setting a really important tone yeah. for how to accept defeat but, 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 I, but when I hear that speech... Two words pop into my head. Buttigieg Warren. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you mean really? 
I mean, if you think about if Pete Buttigieg, yeah, and I still think he's a long shot, but yeah. if he ends up as a nominee, he's going to need a running mate. Well, that's right. a lot more experienced, uh, and net with national political experience and more progressive, someone with a solid progressive record. Well, okay, so Alan, it's not going to be Bernie Sanders. Just, you may have just anticipated the question I was going to ask first to Audrey. I was, you know, what's Elizabeth Warren's argument for staying in the race at this point? She's 9% of the vote in New Hampshire. Um, I mean, I know she's going to come south. I mean, at a certain point, the field's got to narrow. And and I, I, I can see almost every other candidate um, last night being able to make a strong case for why they still can win the nomination. I find it personally hard to understand what her case is at this point. And maybe I just don't get it. Well, you know, I would... But if she wants to be VP, that's one reason to stay in for a while. Well, that could be. But (laughs) traditionally, one, in the democratic process, because you do have proportional allocation of delegates, the process is working like it usually works. You know, they're they're coming in, they're testing, they'll be winnowing. And really, it isn't until Super Tuesday, post-Super Tuesday, that you really see the drop-off. And candidates stay in for a variety of reasons. One, they feel they owe it to the people who are supporting them. Two, they may want to bring in a few more delegates so they can have a little bit more influence at the convention, you know, give their speech and, you know, make their uh, voice heard. You know, so if Warren does bring in some more delegates, a little bit more support, if she decides that she's going to throw her uh, support over to Buttigieg, it it matters more, right? Or to Sanders, it matters more. um, I mean, I think she stays in at least until Super Tuesday. And and part of the Mm -hmm. reason is that she has the money to stay in Mm -hmm. until Super Tuesday. So, if you think about, you know, who really has the resources right now to run a national campaign to compete on Super Tuesday, Sanders, um, he's got lots of money. He can keep raising money. Uh, Bloomberg, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly. Um, but also Warren, I think, at least has enough to last through Super Tuesday. Um, she has a very solid uh, – her fundraising has been very, very solid. Yeah. She pulled a lot of money in from her yeah. Senate. See, you guys know a lot. I mean, that's why you're here because you can answer these questions much better than I Well, I was going to say I the could. other thing is so the Warren campaign either yesterday or the day before put out a memo sort of talking about going forward, right? It's it's one of the few to sort of say like, okay, here's all – let's talk about the next campaigns. Let's talk about what's going on. And I think one of the things that it does point out, which is not unimportant, is that in many ways a number of the people who are still in the race – have not really been vetted. As we've sort of been talking about, a lot of people don't know who Amy Klobuchar is. They don't right. really know who Pete Buttigieg is. They don't know the background. They certainly don't know Steyer. They may not know a lot about Bloomberg, right? There's more coming out there. For better or for worse, Warren's kind of already gone through the vetting mm-hmm. rigor. Yeah, that's right? absolutely true. There isn't anything true. new there that's going to be coming out. Point. She's already yeah. kind of dealt I, with it, moved past it, and so that could help her. Yeah, I, I don't mean to interrupt, I, but i got to get another break in. Um, and actually, if it's okay with all of you, I, I think it's particularly great to have you all here because I'd like to turn to a story uh, that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution published the other day on the really dramatically changing demographic mm-hmm. of Georgia's registered voters. And you are exactly the group who mm-hmm. can uh, add some real uh, in- intelligent thinking to. So let's do this. Let's take our final break of the show, and we'll be back on Political Rewind in a moment.
So there are figures out now that show us something about how uh, the voter rolls in Georgia expanded in 2019. I want to go over a few of the numbers very quickly and and then turn it over to the panel. So uh, last year, the state added 322,000 active voters to the rolls, which means there are now 7.2 million Georgians registered out of a population of some 10 million. 68% of the state is now registered. By the way, one of the things that fascinated me about last night was watching people register to vote in the polling places right. where they mm-hmm. cast their ballot. Isn't that a novel and revolutionary <laughs> idea? Um, the number of 18 to 34-year-olds has jumped 68%. Since 2016, um, there are bigger increases than ever in Hispanic and Asian voters, although those numbers are still very small, and black votes held steady at about 33%. So with a March 24th uh, presidential primary headed this way in a general election in November with May primaries for statewide offices— Ooh, Alan, you start. What is this telling us about what's going to be starting to happen? Well, I think it's one more indication— um, building on the results of the 2018 midterm election where we, where we saw the Demo- Democrats make gains in Georgia and Stacey Abrams uh, get a higher share of the vote than any Democratic candidate for governor in quite a while, that Demo- Georgia is becoming a purple state. You know, it's becoming a swing state. Now, I don't think Democrats are looking at Georgia for 2020 as a must-win state or a state they're necessarily going to devote a lot of resources to. Um, but I think the longer-term picture is clear. The Georgia electorate is changing faster than just about any other state. Uh, it's becoming more diverse. It's becoming younger. Um, it's got to be good news for Democrats. doesn't necessarily mean they're going to win in 2020. It, it, you say in the presidential race, but does it give Democrats hope in either of the Senate races, Amy? Oh, I think decidedly. I mean, the the change in the demographics definitely benefit the Democrats, right? Both that increase in uh, the younger voters. Also, there was one of the biggest notable decreases that we've had recently in the percentage of older voters as well. So it really was sort of this shift and seeing it there. The question, though, is will these new voters actually show up at the polls? Right, right. right? We know that older people are much more likely to go vote. Younger people vote right. at abysmally low rates. And, all and of my motor students. voters, and the that's reason an why so many of them are exactly. registered, the, the young people, they mean they registered when they got their driver's license, but there Democrats was no intentionality to... is yeah. what that in means. In fact, they may not uh, even know because they ha- you have to opt out rather yeah. than opt in. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the, the issue with voter registration by itself is that it is can actually be a really passive activity. So it's mm-hmm. either like you're doing it when you're you know getting your driver's license or maybe somebody comes up to you and kind of helps you fill out the form yeah. and you don't think about it. So campaigns have to remember to follow up with mobilization. So this right. was the genius of Stacey Abrams' campaign was that she was doing mm-hmm. voter education. She was doing voter mobilization. I think the DPG has figured that out, but they still have to run. You still have to run the program. Mm-hmm. So if you're not doing the GOTV game, then you're not, then it's not going to work right. out. And I think especially for the second Senate race here, mm-hmm. um, you know, I anticipate, given the fact that Doug Collins is in the race, that one of the Democrats is going to, you know, end up being one of the top two candidates, but then they've got to come back in December. And so that coming back in December requires Mm -hmm. intensive mobilization at a time of year where people aren't used to voting and where Mm -hmm. there are a lot of distractions. You know, Audrey, Stacey Abrams just got a big contribution from guess who? Bloomberg? Michael Bloomberg. Absolutely. Uh, Audrey, here's here's one of the questions, though. Um, Republicans don't seem to be looking at the demographics uh, as they're changing here. Maybe they are, and we just don't see any evidence that they're moved to want to change. They're playing pretty much to their base. And and I can't help but wonder, you know, there's going to be a fight this fall over whether uh, uh, Democrats are able to take control of the Georgia House. Um, And that's still problematic for them. But I can't help but wonder if you're a thinking Republican down there, if you're a David Ralston You've got to start thinking about the agenda you're presenting um, based on the demographics, whether or not you're going to control the House or not. To some extent, it's going to be based on whether you pay attention to the changing demographics. And to some extent, Ralston does do that. Well, I I agree. I think and I'd like to hear what everybody else has to say about it, too. I think that people are paying attention to it. There's always a bit of a lag and they do have this quandary. The quandary is you've got to run in a primary and then you've got to run in a general election. And And, and And, they've got Donald Trump. 
yeah. up yeah. there as the leader of the National Republican Party whose messaging is exactly wrong. For, for what they're trying yes, to do. Yes, but you could suggest that that's, it was, it was, Kelly Loeffler is, is the choice for Brian Kemp because he's trying to pay attention to uh, uh, the new demographics uh, in Georgia, although that's about women more than anything else, nevertheless. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I would argue, I think we see that what they're doing is wrong in the long term, um, you know, because normatively we disagree with it, and I think that there are really good reasons to disagree with that. On the other hand, though, I think Republicans, even Donald Trump, are paying attention to those changing demographics. Yep. State but of the what union. they're trying to do is they're trying to just make small changes on the margins. So, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that, that President Trump is transactional and wants to remind black people all the time that they have jobs because of him, even though that may not be true, um, is evidence <laughs> yeah. of the fact that they're trying to peel off I mean, that's not the majority of black yeah. votes, yes. but that's just enough. But it's not working. If you if you look at the polling data, I mean... They're just trying to pick off enough to yeah. make a difference. Yeah. Slim, slim, the way, the way slim, you win African-American voters as a Republican, going back, and, and as they haven't been doing this for a long time, is you run a moderate Republican. Moderate Republicans historically win a larger share, still a minority, of yeah, the but African American. All he's trying to do is get like a couple percentage points different. But they don't, don't, Amy, Amy, but they don't need to win he's them. He's terribly unpopular You're right, with African Americans. But I get that. He doesn't need to win them if he convinces oh, no, them not. just, no, if to he stay convinces home. them Some to people stay well, that's, home. That's what yes. the and that's really what's going on, is he's mobilizing his base and getting them riled up so they will turn out while also depressing well, there's going to be a social media campaign and, and there's going yeah. to be a, a covert campaign. I mean, it's I peeling off. I mean, I think Andre's right. It's peeling off at those couple of people on the sides mm -hmm. and then convincing everybody else that it's not worth yes. it. This is terrible. Let's stay home. Right. I got to say this, too. I'm sorry, Andre. Yeah. But it's like think about the messaging. You know, there's so many places to message. Big audience, State of the Union. Look at who he was, mm -hmm. you know, trying to win over. Uh, Twitter feed. Not everybody listening. I'm going to uh, retweet something that is more for my base. I mean, it is amazing to watch the sleight of hand and sort of the the the, the big picture that's being generated mm -hmm. by there. But I was going to say, look at what they say, but then compare it to what they do. Mm -hmm. You know, right? That's what we look at. We know I mean, their messaging, but what are they doing? The, th the thing that's striking to me, though, is that with all this you know, money and effort they're pouring into social media. I mean, we know that he's going to have the best funded campaign overall in probably the history of the country, unless Mike Bloomberg is running against him. <laughs> um, and yet, and yet, you know, his approval ratings remain stuck in mm -hmm. kind of the low to mid 40s, danger territory for an incumbent president. He's trailing every, yeah. of every major Democratic candidate in the national polls. Now, that doesn't mean a lot at this point. But it's not a good sign. Right. We are virtually out of time. But under one really quick comment based on what Alan just said, this is why President Trump, in playing to his base, uh, is risking the possibility of losing. Because he's going to have to expand his base at least somewhat mm -hmm. to win this election in November. And you got about 10 seconds to mm -hmm. say something about that. Well, sometimes, I mean, I agree with Amy. It's part expanding by subtraction. But what he's looking at is that marginal sort of difference, right? right? That's the 77,000 votes. That's all he needs. Relatively speaking, right. in this we way. are. I'm sorry to interrupt. In a, in a couple places, we right. are completely <laughs> out of time. Audrey Haynes, Andrew Gillespie, Amy Steigerwald, Ellen Abramowitz. Thank you for just a terrific show today, and thank you all for listening. We're back again uh, tomorrow at uh, nine and two. See you then.